All right, so if you have your Bible, let's go to uh, 1 Peter, and we're going to look at the latter half of this first chapter. Um, there's outline in your bulletin, and uh, the title of the message today is Living as Exiles. So Peter is writing, as we said last week, to a group of churches that are scattered all throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and uh, though... By and large, they lived with some measure of stability and comfort as, as being believers and followers of Jesus Christ. They also experienced um, trials and difficulties and grievances for having made their faith public. And um, friends would openly mock them for their faith. They were maligning them in chapter two and or verse chapter four and verse four for their the fact they would no longer join in their wild parties and their sexual escapades and. So they were getting pushed back for their faith and taking their stance in a culture that they were now unfamiliar with because their lives were changing, the culture around them was changing for the worse. They, they were getting better as God is changing them from the inside out. And although there was not at this time at least um, severe physical persecution, that would come later. Emperor Domitian was in charge of the Roman Empire at this time, but on the heels of Domitian would come Nero, and Nero would bring severe um, persecution against the church, against Christians in particular, and using them as torches for his parties, and throwing them into the dens of lions, and all those kinds of things. So Peter is trying to get this group of believers prepared for not only what they're facing um, in the present, but also what they are going to be facing in the near future, if they're willing to stand up for their faith. And so he says, listen, you, you can live your life one of two ways when you're following Christ. You can either live it faith-filled or you're going to live it fear-filled. So the minute you start getting pushed back and then fear starts to kick in and say, well, but I, I don't want to be disliked and um, I want to be liked and that's more important to me than standing for truth. And so fear wins over faith. And so Peter says, you're going you're gonna to experience all kinds of trials and sufferings and grievances, as he called it, uh, in your faith walk. So the question is, how are we going to stand? How are we going to uh, live in light of the culture that is becoming more and more diametrically opposed to the message of the church, which is where we are today, right? This is in our own country, in our own culture. Our culture is changing rapidly, and it's becoming more and more diametrically diametrically opposed to the message of the church. The church is now looked upon as something that is antiquated, something that is bigoted, something that is judgmental. Those are the terms and phrases people often use in describing. Uh, when I think about a Christian, this is what I think about. And when I think about church, this is the way that I, I view it. And so on a personal level, if you stand up for Christ, for example, in the, in the workplace, it might cost you a promotion. It may cost you a contract. Or if you stand up for Christ, even in amongst your own family members, you might be ostracized by family members or by friends because of your personal stance in your walk and relationship with Jesus. So 1 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So fear can be a very powerful paralyzing force. Now the Achilles heel to fear is faith. And faith is where we are in fear are both concerned about the future, right? But faith looks at the uncertainty of the future 
and borrows from God's grace and mercy in knowing that God is in control of all things, that he's moving all of history towards a specific destiny, and you and I are now a part of that process that he's working out here on planet Earth as God's bringing his kingdom into the world in which we live. Fear manifests itself in worry. So if you worry all the time, uh, fear has taken over. Fear has hijacked your emotions. And worrying does you absolutely no good. It's like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but you're not getting anywhere. And so it tends to paralyze us, and it tends to steal our joy and fills our minds with toxic thinking. So one of the things I did a long time ago is I have a little fear box so if, if something is creating fear inside of me, I just write that down. I put it in the fear box. And when I'm putting it in the fear box, I'm saying, okay, Lord, this is yours. It's not mine. I'm not in control of this. You're in control of this. There's nothing I can do about this. I'm trusting you. I'm going to walk after you no matter what. And if I want to worry about that, I have to go and physically pull it out of the worry box. Because when I do that, I'm saying, in essence, I'm going to play God. I'm going to worry all day long. I'm going to fret over all of this, and therefore, I'm in control as though I were in control when I'm not, right? So life always comes down to, are we as Christians facing the culture that we're now facing, are we going to face it with faith, or are we going to face it with fear? So in the very outset, here's what Peter said to his readers, we are both the elect and we are the exiles. The elect, we have been chosen by God. We have been chosen as his, as his children, as his representatives, as his ambassadors, as the ones who will demonstrate the life and the love of Christ here on planet Earth. But that doesn't mean that we will not be opposed in our seeking to love people and share truth and, um, and the outcome of all that. And he went also on to say, look, we are exiles, Right? This is not our home. So if you expect this world to bring you perfection, you're always going to be miserable and frustrated. This is not our home. So the fact that we are the elect means that God has chosen you. But as exiles, it means the world has rejected you. And that's the constant struggle in the Christian life. Am I going to give over to fear in order to blend in, to fit in, or I'm going to stand in faith, even though that might create some very awkward moments and opportunities in my relationships with other people, whether it be neighbors, friends, coworkers, people you go to school with, whatever that might be. God lives in me, but the world doesn't work for me. God has a home for me, but the world doesn't feel like it to me. Even Jesus was one of the elect. Look in chapter 2 and verse 4. Here's what he says. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Jesus was chosen by God, right? And he, he was the elect. He was, the, he was um, chosen by God. He's precious. But Jesus wasn't just merely a part of the elect. He was an exile. Look what it says down in verse 8. And a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. In other words, to paraphrase the gospel of John, John said, listen, Jesus came to his own, but they rejected him. They forsook him. He became a stumbling block to them. Even his own family opposed him. So what Peter is setting up for us is simply this. If this is what happened to Jesus, the chosen son of God, 
but yet he experienced all kinds of opposition for his life and his stance, why would we expect anything less? If we're going to change the culture, the world in which we live, we have an advantage that the world doesn't have. We have the Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God, given the opportunity, can change the atmosphere that we find ourselves in if we live as the exiles that God's called us to live as. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What does it take, what does it mean to live as an exile in our temporary world where we're just ambassadors, we're representatives of, the God, of God's kingdom. This is not our, you know, this is our earthly home, but it's not our eternal home. How do we have the greatest amount of impact in the lives of people who are outside of God's kingdom? And so... Uh, this is why God working in conjunction with us is why prayer is so, so important. Because God does very little apart from prayer, right? He does very little in the world apart from his people, which is why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are the ones he's operating through, and it is through our prayer connection that God brings the resources, the heavenly resources, into our earthly opportunities as we're seeking to change the atmospheres. My prayer that we would raise up a generation who will openly display the raw power of the gospel, the power to save, to heal, to see people have their, their emotions healed, to have their, their brokenness healed, to be delivered from the strongholds that Satan has set up in their mind that govern and controls their thinking, which governs and controls their emotions and their lives, that they would have the freedom that Christ would have, that we would come with the power of the gospel into every atmosphere that God places us in so that we can see God just do things that we never dreamed are possible. Now, most Christians would identify fear as the primary reason that we don't share the gospel with more frequency or more fervency. I don't think that's really it at all. I think it goes deeper than that. I think one of the reasons why we don't share the gospel with more fervency and frequency is because we're embarrassed. We don't evangelize because of the expected social and emotional ramifications for us. If we're honest, we don't want to be embarrassed. We have the disease to please. Right? We want people to like us. We don't want them to dislike us. We want them to think that we are contemporary, that we're hip, we're tolerant, we're progressive, we're, we're, um, you know, we're fun-approving, and the list goes on and on. And so sometimes out of fear of losing a friendship, we just won't say anything. So Peter challenges us as he's challenging his readers. So here's how he starts off in this second section. The first 12 verses really just set up the outline for the entire book he says, therefore, now what's the therefore? It's referring back to the first 12 verses. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled, self set your hope fully on the grace given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So Peter says, listen, in light of the fact that God the Father chose you, he loved you, he set his love upon you, he called you out, you responded to his call through the person of the Holy Spirit, 
He adopted you into his family. He forgave you. He justified you. He's glorifying you. He's, he is moving your life in a direction that is in an upward trajectory over time as he's, he's transforming us from the inside out. And he says, listen, your testimony is you have a BC and an AD. This was my life before Christ. This is my life after Christ. Now let me share with you how God changed me and what he's doing through the process of that change so that I can live as the most effective exile as I possibly can in the world in which I find myself. So here's what Peter says. Here's the application of the first 12 verses. If we're going to live as effective exiles, we have to first begin thinking differently. We have to begin thinking differently. Notice what he says. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Or some of your, your translations might say be sober-minded. In other words, have your minds ready for action. Get your mind ready for battle because you are in a battle. He's going to talk about Satan being the roaring lion looking to devour those whom he can devour. And so he is saying in essence, listen, you've got to take Satan seriously because if you don't, he will develop footholds in your life that will turn to strongholds that will become death holds. And that is the the aspect of the gospel that says, man, we need God's deliverance, right? We need to take every thought captive unto obedience to Christ if we are going to offload those death holds, strongholds, and footholds that have trenched themselves into our thought processes that are basically lie-based. And so he would say, man, um, get your head straight is basically what he's saying. Or if you ever played football, those of you guys have ever played football, and you're, you're given a play to run, and you run the play, and, and you make a huge mistake, somebody inevitably on your team, if not a coach, is going to come up beside you and whack you on the helmet and say, get your head in the game. That's what Peter is saying. Do not be mindless. You have to think correctly. Mindless people are very emotional people, and emotional people tend to follow the mob. They tend to follow the crowd. Um, we are dealing with a culture that is full of emotion in our day and time, in our country, but very little reasoning. We're all about blowing things up and tearing it down, but we never really thought about what we're going to build it back with. And so there's a lot of emotion happening in our society because... There's cultural conflict. There are issues that are swirling and debates and controversies. And everybody's all emotional, but we're not really thinking that clearly about what it is we're all hyped up about. And so your emotions are like the sail, right? But your mind had better be the rudder. God never designed us to be driven by our emotions. He designed us be, to be driven by clear thinking. It's not that you're not an emotional person. But emotions are never to be in the driver's seat. Thinking clearly is what is to be in our driver's seat because the way you think affects the way you feel, which ultimately affects our actions in life. And so he says, passions are fine, provided that they are being guided and directed. Other words, otherwise they can lead to mass destruction. And so when mobs just give in to passion, right? And so, you know, we had riots going on all over the our country and people are looting and, and people will go out and reporters will go out and say, well, what are you out here? What are you, what are you, um, you know, protesting? I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm just here. You know, the crowd's here. I'm here. I'm just kind of swept up into the moment. 
This is what happens when we become mindless and driven by emotion and not clear thinking. So he says to be self-controlled, or some of your translations might say be sober. That God so loved you and saved you and put a spirit inside of you, and now he's going to change the way you think. He's going to start governing your desires. He's going to start governing the things that once controlled you, the flesh. He wants to root that out so that we are governed and direct with clear thinking as the Holy Spirit is giving us the Word of God entrenched, implanted into our minds so that we are living truth-based lives rather than lie-based, emotionally driven lives. And I, I love some of the translations says, be sober, because here's what I know about drunk people. They don't make good decisions. I never made a good decision when I was drunk. Now, I thought at the time I was making good decisions, I thought I was making a lot of sense, but I wasn't. Absolutely was not. Some of the greatest regrets I've ever had in life are things that I made while I was drunk. I was driven more by emotion than I was sound thinking, and it just did not turn out very well. And so Peter's using this word picture because of what God has done. He says, in essence, listen, guys, roll up your sleeves. Um, get a clear head, get your wits about you, get your head in the game, because I want to tell you something new that's going to happen inside of you and what you're going to look like. Listen, anyone can call themselves a Christian. Anyone can wear the title Christian. But to be Christ-like is a whole different ballgame. There are a lot of people out carrying the title Christian who are living anything but a Christ-like life. And the ultimate reason is because nothing has changed in your thought processes. And if nothing changes in the way that you think, nothing will change in your life. Your life is always moving towards your most dominant thinking, your most dominant thought processes. So what is the way and the means in which God transforms our thought processes? Well, look what he says in verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Or as Paul put it in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world any longer, but be ye transformed in the, by the renewing of your mind. In other words, the world is constantly pulling us, trying to pull us back, into its pattern of thinking, into its pattern of thought process or what we used to do, right? So you have an enemy Satan who's coming against you. You've got the world that is dominated by, by Satan, the pattern of the world that's trying to pull you back into the things that once held you captive and in bondage, enslaved footholds. And so he says the only way we can change that is to learn to take every thought obedient and captive unto Christ in chapter uh, two, 10 of 2 Corinthians, uh, book of 2 Corinthians. So how does God do that? There's only one way. And you've heard this a thousand times over. It's the word of God. Only the word of God can root out what is faulty in your thought processes. So hold up your hand. You've got to read it. Let's say read it. We've got to read it. We've got to hear it. We've got to study it. We've got to memorize it. We've got to meditate upon it, and you can do all those things, but if you never apply it, nothing changes. 
Now, we've heard that all of our lives as Christians, but how much time do we actually spend in God's Word? I've shared with you before, LifeWay did an exclusive study about how effective the Word of God is in the lives of believers, and they found that a person who spends less than four days a week in God's Word, making deposits day after day, nothing changes in their life. There's no difference in their life, or very little. Only those who go four or more actually experience the transformation power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to think differently. Listen, God has given us his word, and he says, I want you to know this because this is my manual for kingdom citizens. This is my plan. This is my agenda. This, listen, this is how you live the most powerfully effective life you can possibly live as a follower of Jesus Christ, living Christ-like. So either you will be disciplined in the word, or you're going to be a drifter. Now, it's easy to drift, right? You just don't do anything. The discipline takes effort. You've ever tried to discipline yourself in something? Let's say, for example, you say, oh, I'm going to decide that I'm going to run a 5K, right? Well, you're not going to say, well, I'm going to run a 5K in two, three months, and then you just sit in your house and do nothing in preparation for the 5K. Otherwise, you're not even going to do a 1K. Right? You're going to be falling over the side of the road. It takes discipline to build yourself up for that. And so, look, excuses are available in an abundance. And you can even, excuses can be even cloak themselves in busyness. Like, I'm busy doing a lot of things, and I really would like to get in God's Word, but I'm just so busy doing so many things, you're too busy doing the wrong things, is what God would say to you. You need to, for God to change your thought processes. So you can either make excuses or you can make progress, but you can't do both. And if we don't learn how to think differently, then we'll never learn to live differently. That's the next progression that Peter deals with. If I'm not changing my thought processes, my life never changes. I might make cosmetic adjustments, but there's no fundamental, deep-rooted work of God happening in my life until I begin to think differently as my mind is rooted in the Word of God and the Spirit of God takes that and brings about that transformation of thinking that leads to the transformation of my emotions and what I do. So that when mob mentality rises up, Rather than just being emotionally driven and jumping into things I'm not even knowing I'm jumping into, just because I'm all fired up emotionally, we might want to step back and say, mm, wait a minute, where are we going with this? What's going to be left in its wake? Uh, should we really be engaged and involved in this? So here we are, how do we live differently? Look what he says in verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear, for you know that it is not the, with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He, has chosen, he, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these times 
for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and your hope are in, in God. So how do we live differently? He says right out of the gate, you learn to walk in holiness. Now, anytime people use the word holiness, it's like, oh my gosh, like so boring. Is that like I sit zen all day long and just meditate on Jesus? It's not what it means at all. So what I want to do is say, here's a, b- a brief definition. Listen, holy people, holy things simply belong to God. In other words, when God brought you into his kingdom, he set you apart. He made you holy. Positionally, you are holy in Christ. Practically, not so much. So the time frame in between is where you make progress. You never reach perfection of holiness, but you make progress as the Holy Spirit of God is working in you, transforming you. It's what we call that big churchy word, sanctification. As I yield myself to God's word and I allow God's spirit to begin transforming my thought processes that helps me offload my brokenness to bring healing in deep inside of me and to offload the strongholds that held me and are holding me captive, it loosens up my life to begin living more and more like Jesus, which is what he is talking about here. You stepped over the line, you've placed your faith in, the, in Jesus, he's forgiven you, and now he's going to craft and holiness inside of you so that you begin to live and walk in holiness who you've become in Christ. So let me share with you what holiness is not, okay? Because there's vast confusion here and it really trips people up. So I'm going to give you four examples of what it is not and give you a tagline of what it is. And first of all, walking in holiness is not radical separation or self-denial. It's what I call modern-day Pharisees. When God said, for example, keep the Sabbath holy, all right, that was a statement that God made. I want you to keep the Sabbath holy and not work on it. Well, the Pharisees got a hold of that, and they came up with all kinds of additional rules and regulations to keeping the Sabbath holy, right? So they had all these rules, these extra fences you can't cook on the Sabbath. You got to cook the day ahead. You can warm it up, but you can't cook. You can only walk so far. You can only carry so much weight. Uh, you can't heal on the Sabbath, for goodness sakes. Wouldn't want anybody to get healed on the Sabbath, which, by the way, is exactly why Jesus would often heal on the Sabbath. He was poking them and prodding them and saying, in essence, yeah, you can. Uh, you guys have made a lot of rules and a lot of restrictions, but that's not in the Word. Here's what I know about legalism. Legalistic rules are always based on Scripture. They're just never found in Scripture. So they had the Scripture, keep the Sabbath holy, added all the legalistic rules to it, but you couldn't find those legalistic rules in Scripture. You get it? See, that's how some of you grew up. You were taught it's Sunday. Here's what you cannot do. Cannot shop, can't play cards, can't do this, can't do that. What are you basing that on? Well, to keep the Sabbath holy. We're supposed to rest. It's a day of rest. It's a day of reflection on God. Well, where's the scripture for all these other rules? Well, I don't really have them. I just set up those extra rules. Now, if setting up extra rules are good for you to help you maintain something, that's fine. 
You just can't superimpose those on somebody else because that's not what God said. Now, here's the problem with all this, is that the Pharisees over time began to look at people who broke the rules as the enemy. We need to seclude ourselves from these people. They might contaminate us. And so they, it led them into a radical separation from everybody they considered a sinner who was breaking all the rules. Now, you can imagine what happens when Jesus comes on the scene, and who does Jesus go to? He goes to the sinners, which is why they criticize him. How dare he hang out with these sinners, which is what launched him into the, you know, the parables of Luke chapter 15, which all of them said the same thing. You, you've never locked eyes on anybody who is not important to God. And so, no, God hasn't called us to this radical separation. We're not to run from everyone else because, you know, we're, we're supposed to be running towards them. This is what Jesus did. So what did Jesus do? He went to a party thrown by Matthew, which was one of his disciples. Remember what Matthew got called out of? He was a tax collector. The Pharisees hated tax collectors. They worked for Rome. And so he has this party, and who does Matthew invite? All of his unchurched friends. And what did the Pharisees say about it? They criticized Jesus. They called him a drunkard. They called him a slaggard. Why? Because we don't hang around those kinds of people. If we're not careful, this happens in churches. It happens in youth groups. We don't want to reach those kinds of kids because they might come into our youth group and contaminate our kids. Is that what we've been called to? Is that a life of holiness? Absolutely not. And so Jesus says, man, um, here, here's what causes you to isolate and separate. It's fear. It's fear-driven. That's what drove the Pharisees. They were fearful of somehow contaminating themselves and thus disqualifying themselves as being righteous in the eyes of God. And then there was the self-denial aspect. You know, the more things we take away, the more we please God, the more holy we are in his sight. And so they began removing all kinds of things. And uh, the things that they wanted to, you know, uh, boast about, they had no problem. You know, Jesus in Matthew 6 criticized them because they were standing on the street corners. They wanted to seem pious and, you know, like holy prayer warriors. And they would ring bells or use tambourines to call attention to themselves. And then, you know, go to these long, lengthy prayers or call attention to themselves when they gave offerings. And what did Jesus say? You've got the applause of man. You don't have the applause of God, but you've got the applause of man. And so uh, this is something we have to we have to rely upon is that, listen, sometimes people think, well, I'm not a full-on disciple of Jesus unless I'm de denying myself of a lot of stuff because after all, Jesus says we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him. Well, I think we kind of misinterpret that a little bit. If God calls me to deny something as an assignment from him, I'll deny it. But if he hasn't called me to deny myself of something, because it's not an assignment of him, then I don't have to deny it unless it's something sinful, right? It doesn't mean that every day I get up and say, well, if I really want to be close to God today, I guess I'm going to have to give up TV or give up whatever. Now, listen, sometimes I give up TV 
I, for extended period of time. It's a, it's a form of fasting for me, not because God has made me do it, not because I'm earning brownie points, but because I just want to get closer to the Lord and spend more time in his word. And this is a distraction that I can offload so that I can go deeper in the word and deeper in my thought process so that it goes deeper into my life. Now, the second thing the holiness is not is angry activism. That was the modern day zealots in Jesus's day and time. They refused to give in to Roman oppression, so these guys were just like angry, right? So they're always like into guerrilla warfare in their day and time. They were the angry activists that we would say. So in our, in our society, it would be the people who are going to go out and, and you're going to picket everything that you disagree with. You know, you see um, sin and you're going to go after it, you're going to picket it. And you're, you know, you're refusing to submit to it, and you're the angry activist. And we find people we believe who, uh, you know, they're they're deep into sin, and we're just going to go after it, and we're going to judge them, and we're going to make light of it, and and we're just going to come down on them as hard as we can. And so the favorite term of the activist is spiritual warfare, but spiritual warfare, from God's perspective, is the warfare that's happening in us not warring with the people around us. Nowhere in the Bible has the church been called to go out and judge society around us. Judgment is left in the hands of God. We are called, though, to hold one another within the church accountable for our sin issues. That's how we help one another to grow in our love and our walk and our relationship with the Lord Jesus that spills out over into society. Listen, if I'm warring against everything that is sinful in society, then they become the enemy. That's the way the zealous were. They're, they're the enemy. We got to go after them. We got to stamp them out. Here's the problem with that. Jesus says in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Who did Jesus come to save? His enemies, not his friends. Romans 5.8 says that Jesus came for us, you and I, while we were still his enemies. He didn't come to judge us and to condemn us. He came to call us into relationship with him. And he did that in a way that he brought truth, yes, but it was tempered with grace. See, activists are all about truth. It's all about condemnation. It's all about judgmentalism. It's one of the reasons why the church is viewed by society as being bigoted, antiquated, judgmental, critical, and we're not known for the one thing that we are supposed to be known for as followers of Christ, that the world would know that we're followers of Christ, which is love. So if God died for us and loved us when we were his enemies, how dare we think that we're going to do his work when we hate his modern-day enemies, when we are furious and angry with the crisis of sin. Our Lord is not in the business of wiping out his enemies. One day that will happen. But in the meantime, here's what God says we're to do. I want you to go back to the left to 2 Timothy chapter 2 for a minute. Just turn left a few books over. 2 Timothy 2, 24. Here's what God says. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. 
in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth. And they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. When Peter says later in his book, when people ask you about the hope that is in you, that you need to be ready to give into defense, and he says you do it gently and you do it respectively, you don't do it critically and you don't do it judgmentally. Now, why am I pointing all this out? Is because, listen, the modern-day zealots, the angry activists, I mean, Facebook's full of it. Here's the problem. If you're a believer in Christ and you're just railing against the sin of society on social media, you are ostracizing the very people you have been called to love and to serve and to share Jesus with. Be very careful. You can be an activist in a kind, gentle, and very um, effective way. One of the largest abortion clinics in the United States was shut down, not because people were outside picketing it every day, hollering at the women who were going in there, calling them all kinds of derogatory names. It was a group of people who simply prayed, stood outside the fence and prayed, and when a woman drove up, they would simply say something like, listen, we know you're about to make a powerful decision. Do you mind if we just pray for you? And over time, the woman who was the director of that center just was overtaken by what was going on, gave her life to Christ, radically changed her, and she shut down one of the most profitable abortion clinics that was known to Planned Parenthood. Now, that's a good thing, right? It's not activating out of resent and ugly ugliness. There's a way to approach something. Holiness doesn't mean I have to get all riled up where I'm just like slamming people for their sin. Who is, who among any of us? is without sin. I don't know anybody here is perfect. As Jesus said, if, you, if you're without sin, you pick up the first stone. And I would say like all of those who were standing there that day, we'd be dropping them pretty quickly, right? Holiness is not reflective loners, the, what I call the modern day monks. These are people like, you know what? We're just going to go up in the mountains and we're just going to zen. We're going to pray all day long and uh, have no contact with humanity and just be really holy with God. This is not what God has called us to do. Prayer is great. Reflection is great. Time's a way to get close to the Lord. Wonderful. But Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the city that is built on the hillside. You don't hide it. Let your good works shine before those who are around you that they may see them and glorify your Father. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've obeyed. We cannot become holy monks and just shut ourselves behind stained glass windows and never move out into the society, the community God has called us to. That is not a sign of holiness. And fourthly, it is not power without godliness. Samson was a big, strong dude. And he lived back in the Old Testament when God was using judges to rule his people. And Samson did really well for about 20 years. But Samson was anything but holy. He was nothing more than a hormone-driven sex addict. 
if you read his story. He was duped by Delilah, but that was just one of his problems among many. And here's where this plays into holiness. Modern-day Samsons have power without godliness. Now hear me well. Do not confuse holiness with giftedness, because that's what we often do, is that if somebody's extremely gifted and have this high-power ministry, we assume that they're walking in holiness. Or somebody is a great singer, and they command the, the attention of thousands in Christian concerts, and people's, you know, tears are streaming down their eyes. We assume their giftedness means that they're walking in holiness. Or somebody who's a great communicator, we assume that they're empowered with the holiness of God all over them. Be very careful, because we see that's not always the case. Rabbi Zachariah was one of the great apologists of our day and time, but after he died, it was uncovered he wasn't walking in holiness. He had a whole different life behind the scenes. We see the unfolding of multiple pastors out of Hillsong because they're living a double life, a double standard. They're powerful communicators. They're gifted communicators. And we assume that they're walking in the holiness of God when they, in fact, they are not. And so it is not for us to judge that. I'm just simply saying, because somebody's gifted, don't assume that somebody who's making it very successfully in the marketplace or in ministry is actually walking in holiness. It may not be the case. It might just be they're operating out of their giftedness and more than likely, over time, that unholiness will come, to the, will come to light. We see this happen over, and I can't tell you how many hundreds of pastors, high, you know, gifted, huge ministries have fallen because of sexual impropriety. And so holiness is this. Holiness is simply spiritual maturity. As God is developing you day in and day out, and he is conforming you to the image of Jesus, he is bringing into you the mind of Christ and the character of Christ, you are moving in the general direction of holiness as your practical life begins to measure up with your positional life. And it takes the changing of your thinking to lead to a change of living through walking in holiness, and secondly, to walk in reverence. What does he say down in verse um, 17? You call on a father who judges each man's work impartially. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. God is the only one who can judge impartially, right? And so God has, has given every culture, uh, every human being, he's given us a sense of right and wrong. It was etched in our conscience now, you can deny the truth, you can deny right and wrong, as many people do in our day and time. The same people who say, you know, morality is relative, there's no universal standard, there's no universal laws, there's no universal lawgiver. You know, we all get to be our own person, make our own decisions. I'm a law unto myself until something happens to them that they don't prefer, and guess what they do? They revert back and call on the lawgiver and say, that's not fair. For example, if you have a person goes in and loots the store and just ransack and take it out, they'll justify in their mind why they're doing that. But I'll guarantee you if a week later somebody broke into their apartment or, or their home and looted everything out of there, what do you think they're going to do? 
Are they going to say, well, you know, I, I'm getting what I deserve? No. They're going to be, this is not fair. The, there's laws against this. And so that's ultimate hypocrisy to say there's no lawgiver. But yet when I want to depend on the law, there needs to be a lawgiver and a law enforcer. So what God is saying to us through Peter is, listen, um, God, the same God who created us, has universal laws over all of us that are written down in the word of God that are ingrained within us. And so as Christians, we need to find the heart of God according to the word of God, choose to live in the standard of God's righteousness and live in reverence to him. We're not here to judge the culture. We are here to judge it only by the character of God. So that, listen, I live in reverence to the Lord. He's the ultimate judge. I've been called, you've been called to display the grace, the truth, and the love of Christ in a world that is dying without him. And then we learn from that to walk in gratitude. I'm grateful, right? Gratitude is counting your blessings and thanking your heavenly father. It's it, the daily practice of gratitude will transform your attitude and emotions and perspective probably more than anything else. Now, we all get in funks from time to time, right? Life is not going well. You've been a difficult season. I'm in one of those difficult seasons and days when I felt frustrated and discouraged and unhappy and, you know, why is this happening to me? We're tempted to complain and feel sorry for ourselves. God says, great, you got to do a hard reset. What is a hard reset? A hard reset is, you know what? Every time I go in the hospital for chemotherapy, I know that there's people in that hospital who are dying and who would be glad to give up their deathbed for what I'm facing. That's a hard reset, and it works every time, right? We always have something to be grateful for. And here's what Peter says. We're grateful because we have been bought by heaven and we've been bound by heaven. When Jesus gave us life, man, he redeemed us by his blood. He shed his, his blood for our sin. He took upon himself our guilt. And listen, when God chose us, he chose us through the precious blood. And he said, this isn't like just trivial things here. God did a real work in us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God did not send his son to pay for our eternal price to use us for something that is worldly and temporary. And he says, we have a belief and a hope in something that is real. Hope in the Bible is a guaranteed, assured outcome. I know how this is all going to end, right? I know where God's taking us. I know where God's taking the world. We have that assurance that God is working out his plan and purpose, and we are a part of that process. But if we're going to be a part of that process, we have to live as exiles, which means we have to think differently. Until we think differently, we'll never live differently. And when we start living differently and we walk in holiness, we walk in reverence, and we walk in gratitude, then and only then will we love differently. Then we will love differently. What did he go on to say in verse 22? Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. What did Jesus say? This is Peter. Listen, Peter listened to Jesus teach on this stuff. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, 
Jesus wasn't commanding his disciples to feel something. He was commanding them to do something. And so in John 13, 34, Jesus says, as I have loved you, I want you to love one another. Listen, when we hear that phrase, we think, well, the cross. Yeah, Jesus displayed his love on the cross. Cross hadn't happened yet for them. What they thought about were the last three years they've spent with him. And what did Jesus do? Over and over, time and time again, he didn't appeal to his authority. He didn't appeal to his kingship. He appealed to the sacrificial love he displayed for his disciples day in and day out. And the sacrificial love he displayed to all of those whom he came into contact, whether they were the friends and became followers or they were enemies and they wanted to stone him. He treated them no differently. And so Jesus says, now it's our turn. So what does, what does this kind of love require of me? Well, it should serve as a guide, as a signpost, as a compass, as, a, as we navigate the unavoidable, unavoidable complexities that are inherent in our culture. So right, what's going to drive you to reach out to people who particularly don't like you because you're a Christian? Or maybe you had a you know, uh, you have a run-in with them at work. It's a coworker that you just like drives you crazy and drives you nuts. Do we just say, well, I'm not having anything to do with them. I don't want to, just let them go hell. I don't care. Or are we going to show the sacrificial love of Christ towards them as we seek to navigate in relationship with them? And so it should be the way that it informs how we date, how we parent, how we boss, how we manage, how we coach. It should be the perimeter around which we say and do in our roles with our spouses, our coworkers, our, our neighbors. So 1 Corinthians gives us a beautiful picture of sacrificial love, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It's gentle. It doesn't keep records of wrongs. It's willing to forgive. Do you hear that? Willing to forgive. A lot of forgiveness in love. And so if I'm going to love people, then I have to exercise forgiveness. Love always protects Love refuses to allow anger to overtake me to the point that it spills out all over people. I learn how to deal with that within me before it spews out of me over everybody else. That's what sacrificial love does. And so I'll never love this way until I first learn how to live in holiness and reverence and in gratitude, and I'll never live that way until I first change the way I think. Because the way I change the way I think, as God is transforming my mind and your mind from the inside out, it affects the way we live, which ultimately affects the way we love, which ultimately then affects the way we make decisions. So here's what he says as he concludes this. He says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God, for all men are like grass, all of their glories like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands for how long? Forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So there are three questions we should always ask ourselves when making decisions. If I'm thinking right, and I'm living right, and I'm loving right, then I want to make the right kind of decisions regardless of what I'm facing. Here's number one. Ask, how will this impact eternity? 
the decision I'm about to make, how is this going to impact eternity? If I take this job, if I spend all these hours, how will that impact my spiritual walk or the walk of my family? We make all kinds of decisions that move far beyond the present out into the rippling effect throughout generations and even impacting eternity. If I'm making a decision, for example, about having an affair, is that just going to impact my life in the present? No. It's going to impact my children's lives. It's going to impact their children's lives. It's going to have a rippling effect to the degree that it begins impacting lives of people far beyond what is I'm confronted with in the here and now. The second question is, I need to ask, how will this impact God's reputation? If what I'm about to do, how's this going to impact God's reputation? Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How will this impact God's reputation? How I treat people, how I react, how I live my life. Am I making God look good or am I making him look bad? That depends on whether or not I'm just wearing the label Christian or I'm being Christ-like. But I'll never really live Christ-like until I start thinking right and living right and loving right. And then I'll have the capability of doing right when the push comes to shove. And here's the last question. Ask God, what, what does God say to do in this situation? And here's one of the things that trips up believers. Everybody's all about, I need to know God's will. What is God's will? What is God's will? What is God's will? Well, I'm going to tell you what God's will is. It's in his word. 99% of God's will is in his word. And if you do his word, what about the areas that God's silent in? Right? What about the things he doesn't give a direct word about, a command or a principle? Well, if you're doing the word, God will intersect you into that principle that will give you the guidance you need, and here's what you need to ask yourself. And this is my closing thought. If I'm wanting you to really know what God says about a situation, and I'm fuzzy on it because there's no clear word that God speaks to it directly... The way that I pick up on the principle is I simply ask myself, in light of my past experiences and my present circumstances and my future hopes and dreams, which encompasses all three of these questions, what is the wise thing to do? What is the wise thing to do? In light of my past experiences, my present circumstances, my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? If you will ask that question, the Spirit of God will intersect a principle from God's Word that will give you the answer that you are seeking. And that's what it means to make wise decisions. So, if we think differently, we live differently, we love differently, we make different kinds of decisions as we live as exiles in the world in which God has placed it, in the culture that you find yourself in, in the workplace, the school, the neighborhood, wherever it is you are, we want to be the most impactful, atmosphere-transforming people that we can be, but we must do it in the right way if it's going to last. Let's bow our heads together.
Now, the greatest invitation that Jesus ever gave to us was to come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I love this because if you give him your life, Jesus can forgive your sin. He can give you new life. He promises to bear up under your troubles. He will be your guide when you feel lost. He will be your support when you feel broken, your comforter when you feel overwhelmed. He has he has perhaps been speaking you to, to you this morning and inviting you to come to him. And if he's doing that, why, why not give your life over to Christ today? Whether here online, it all starts with a relationship with Jesus. This is the foundation of everything. But once we enter into that relationship with Christ, we cross that line of faith and put our full trust and belief in him to be the Savior and Lord of our lives we begin the fundamental transformation from the inside out as the Holy Spirit indwells us and lives within us and enables us to live a life that we could never, ever live on our own. So if you've never made that decision, I, I pray that you would reach out to Christ this morning and ask him to be the Savior and Lord of your life, to just confess to him that, yes, I've sinned, yes, I've, I've made a wreck of my life, but I believe that you are the son of God, that you came and you, were, you died for my sins. You were buried, you were resurrected from the grave, and I'm putting my trust in you and my hope of my entire existence and my being in you, Lord Jesus. I'm opening my heart to you. I'm giving my life over to you. I'm, I'm wanting you to come in to be the, the forgiver of my sins, the savior of my life, but also the CEO of my life, the one who will direct and control and guide me in the paths that you have chosen for me that bring me to the best destinations in my life. I want to be a world changer. I don't want to just drift and float around. I want to know that my life has meaning and impact. And so, Lord, if that is the heartbeat of someone here today, I pray your Holy Spirit would just reach into their heart and just, God, just begin that drawing effect, just pulling them towards you as they share, Father, their desire to have Jesus be their Savior and Lord. God, you did not create us for time. You created us for eternity. You did not create us for this world. You created us for the kingdom of God. And so we pray for those who need the kingdom, Father. So please, 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 God, would you open the eyes of believers and give us hearts of love and compassion for the lost. I pray that you will provide us prayer and encouragement and resources to undergird our work spiritually and financially and help us serve in the power of God's God of your spirit and not in the flesh. Help us to represent Christ well with our words and our actions. Make us diligent and effective and fruitful laborers in the harvest that you have said, Lord Jesus, are white and they're ready. So lead us to abide in you, Christ, and be devoted to prayer, relying on you day in and day out. May we be found faithful so that at the end of our lives we will know that we have run the race, and our time is up, but we have been good and faithful servants to you. Help us to live as the most impactful exiles that could ever live as we represent your kingdom. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand. We're going to close today, and I just want to mention one thing. Next Sunday, this is in your bulletin. I just want to give you a heads up. We're doing a we're going to have a, a, sh a short business meeting. We haven't had one in a long time. We have a couple things to vote on. Uh, we're going to shorten the service a little bit so we don't have to 
close the service down and do it. So um, I'm going to do, and I know you'd think this is a miracle, a 30-minute message next week. So uh, you pray about that. Um, I believe I can do it. And so uh, let's just uh, thank God for all that he's done in our lives and for the opportunities he gives to us to bear witness for Christ around us.